Hello, everybody. Welcome. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate for president in 2020. And this Green Socialist podcast is about continuing to discuss and advance the eco-socialist program that we ran on. And we have a special guest today, Connor Mulvaney, who's running for uh, the 4th District City Council seat in Pittsburgh. And we'll bring him on in a few minutes and you can ask him questions and hear what his campaign's about. But I want to comment on two things where I think the Biden administration uh, is really a disaster. The first one is the climate crisis. And we don't have a Green New Deal. Biden made that clear when he debated Trump. He's not for a Green New Deal. And given what we're getting out of these uh, infrastructure bills that are pending before Congress, uh, we got to renew our demands for a Green New Deal because there's no real climate policy coming out of these bills. They're too small in scale in terms of the spending and actually promote fossil fuels and dead ends like nuclear energy. We also have to realize that the Republicans are pretty much irrelevant. They're going to vote against whatever it is. It's the Democrats negotiating with themselves between the progressives and the conservatives, and the conservatives are winning. I mean, even before we got to the infrastructure bills, I'll get to that in a minute, we got to realize that that oil spill off of Huntington Beach in California should have been no surprise. So-called liberal Democrat Gavin Newsom has approved 138 new offshore drilling permits in California water since he became governor. And then Biden just approved, uh, how many, I didn't write it down. He approved a lot of uh, drilling off the coast of Louisiana in the Gulf. And then he approved uh, the Embridge Line 3 pipeline, dirty sands, dirty oil, tar sands oil from Alberta, uh, which will add the equivalent when that oil is burned of 50 new nuclear fired power plants or 38 million new oil powered vehicles uh, to the world's inventory. And Biden could have stopped this like he did the Keystone Pipeline by withdrawing the permits. Instead, he had his lawyers in court uh, throwing out a challenge brought by the indigenous nations affected in Minnesota and Wisconsin and environmental groups. So even before we get to these bills, they're going the wrong way. Now this bipartisan infrastructure bill includes $25 billion a year in new fossil fuel industry subsidies. That's in addition to the 15 billion a year the industry's already getting. And these new subsidies are supposedly to deal with carbon, but it's carbon capture and storage technology, which is not economical and won't be done without subsidies. Hydrogen fuel, which is clean, but if it's made from natural gas, they strip the hydrogen off the methane that emits uh, carbon into the atmosphere, or they can try to capture and store that, but they don't have that technology. And then they're including things like low emission buses uh, that could run on fuels, including what they call blue hydrogen, which is made from methane or just natural gas straight up itself because it's lower than diesel. And so the bipartisan infrastructure bill is a pro-fossil fuel bill. And then the bill that they're trying to come to terms on, the Build Back Better Reconciliation Bill, uh, New York Times today has an article about Kirsten Sinema in Arizona. She's demanding it be cut another $100 billion from what they were proposing, which from earlier reports is maybe six or $700 billion. 
And that's over 10 years. So that's like 60 or 70 billion a year. And so according to this report, you're going to keep 150 billion over 10 years or 15 billion a year for the clean energy, clean electricity payment program. Now, this was going to be a mandate, but to get it through reconciliation, they got to spend some money. So they're going to pay electric utilities to switch from fossil fuels to wind or solar, but also they include nuclear, carbon capture and storage, natural gas from factory farms, waste incinerators, and other dirty energy. So it's uh, not really a clean electricity program, and they're paying the utilities to do it rather than mandating that they do it. And then there's reportedly $300 billion or $30 billion a year in tax incentives for wind and solar power and electric vehicles. Uh, rather than building them directly through the public sector, they're going to provide incentives to the private sector, which is not as uh, certain or as coordinated as it needs to be. That's why we call for an eco-socialist Green New Deal through the public sector. And everything else seems to be on a chopping block. A green bank to help finance solar and electric vehicle charging stations, the Civilian Climate Corps, uh, a program to build more vehicle charging stations, uh, help for rural electric cooperatives to go to renewables. I mean, all these things that are in uh, what was originally proposed out coming out of Sanders in the uh, Senate Budget Committee uh, seem to be maybe on the way out. And of course, Manchin is a uh, creature of the coal industry. He, he, he makes half a million a year in uh, earnings from his uh, coal company, which his son runs. I mean, it's corrupt as hell. And that these numbers are compared to serious Green New Deal proposals. Of course, we ran on one that would have been $2.7 trillion a year, mostly through the public sector, to do this in 10 years. And we budgeted it sector by sector. So we think that's a good estimate. Bernie Sanders ran on a $1.6 trillion a year Green New Deal. And he was on a little bit of a slower timetable, but his numbers look pretty good to us, even though he didn't show his homework like we did. And then at the beginning of this year, <coughs> the uh, progressive Democrats were supporting the Green New Deal Network's Thrive Agenda. The Green New Deal Network is uh, more the more progressive climate groups and one of the unions. The Roosevelt Institute also had a Green New Deal plan. It came in at about a trillion a year. That is, you know, hundreds of times more than Biden is proposing to spend. Um, and then when they got to the $3.5 trillion budget blueprint in August, uh, they, that's when they got this down to six or 700 million, uh, which is only 60 or 70 billion a year over the next 10 years. And now the progressives are, are negotiating down from that. Uh, Biden told them to look for around 2 trillion and, uh, Pramila Jayapal saying, well, I want two and a half trillion and Manchin saying, I want one and a half trillion. So they may end up at two trillion. And while the progressives got a lot of credit, and it's the first time they've ever exercised power like this, of not voting for the bipartisan infrastructure bill without getting a guarantee and having a bill from the reconcil having the reconciliation bill to vote on, uh, they kept the two linked. But you look at it, the conservatives are, are winning the negotiations because they keep shrinking the size of this second uh, reconciliation Build Back Better bill which remember is mostly about uh, social protections, which are good, we should have, for example, paid family leave. There are only four countries in the world besides the United States, or three besides the United States that don't have that. 
And they're countries like Papua New Guinea, which hardly have a cash economy, so you don't really need paid family leave. This country is backward with regard to those things. That's mostly what they're debating about. Climate is just off the table. So I'm saying as Greens, we need to be demanding and running candidates in the midterms and our local candidates demanding the full eco-socialist Green New Deal because the climate crisis is upon us and it's accelerating and we're in, in real trouble if we don't get a real climate response. So that's my first uh, thoughts about you know what we're getting from the Biden administration and the Democrats who have, even though by narrow margins, both houses of Congress. And then we got the travesty of our immigration policies. Not that much has changed since Trump. Border Patrol and ICE still mistreat migrants. You saw those Border Patrol agents on horseback using their reins to whip at Haitian immigrants. There's still squalid conditions and mistreatment in the detention camps. Those mass deportations to Haiti without any due process. And then we got the numbers. There will be less and have been less refugees admitted to the United States. It's never been lower. It's less than it was under each year under Trump. It's less than 10,000 this year. And that's down from just by comparison to from about 80,000 to 120,000 a year uh, for decades from Reagan through Obama. Even though Obama was a deporter in chief. Uh, and then the Biden administration has gone to court to defend Title 42, which comes from Trump. And they say we can deport anybody because of the COVID pandemic, rather than providing due process and the people need vaccinations, vaccinating them instead of just deporting them summarily. So I think we need to also go back to something we were running on during the campaign, and that is open borders. And that sounds radical in the United States, but there are many parts of the world that already have it. The European Union, the uh, four Central American nations, the four nations of the Andean community, the five Nordic nations, 12 Caribbean nations, six East African nations, the five nations of the ultra-conservative Gulf Cooperation Council, those Sunni, you know, uh, kingdoms or whatever they call them, you know, monarchies. And in Nepal, UK, Ireland, you know, many parts of the world do this. We should at least do that in the, in the Americas. And why? Because first of all, freedom of movement should be a fundamental human right. Capital gets to move. People don't. They use borders to divide working people against each other. So those lower wages in Mexico are used as a threat to workers here who want to organize and demand higher wages. And they say, well, we'll move to Mexico. And we support repressive governments that keep wages low. So the borders are used to divide the working class. And, you know, it's just a humanitarian thing. It saves lives of people fleeing from political repression and gang violence and poverty. And all I'll say is we better figure this out because we already got a million and a half climate refugees who are Americans due to climate enhanced storms and floods and wildfires. And the UN International Organization for Migration has predicted up to a billion refugees by 2050. That's 10% of the world's population. And if we try to make this country a fortress cut off from the rest of the world, it's just going to foster more conflict. The United States needs to use wealth to be the world's humanitarian superpower instead of a global military empire that closes off the rest of the world at its borders. And if we make friends instead of enemies, 
that's the way we can get to work with other nations to solve the climate crisis, the global economic and inequality problems, and the endless wars and the new nuclear arms race. So this Fortress America border policy is really counterproductive to all the things tight borders are supposed to protect. They are not good for our security. So with those thoughts, let's bring on Connor Mulvaney, who's running for local office in Pittsburgh. And we've got to elect more Greens locally and, and build from the bottom up so we can take power from these fools that are running the country now. So welcome, Connor. And uh, you know, tell us about yourself and your campaign and what some of the issues are in your in your campaign. Yeah, thanks, Howie. Uh, it's it's an honor to be here. I'm I'm so excited to be talking to to you and everyone that's listening live and folks that are going to be listening later. Uh, so my name is Connor Mulvaney. I'm running for Pittsburgh City Council District Four, uh, which, if anyone's familiar with Pittsburgh, sort of like the southern edge of of the city itself. And uh, I have been a member of the Green Party for a little bit over a year and a half now, I suppose. Uh, I was a volunteer for Bernie Sanders' campaign. I was an environmental constituency organizer with his campaign in Pennsylvania. And unfortunately, it uh, didn't go the, the way that I think a lot of folks wanted to. I think probably a lot of people can uh, sympathize with that that are listening now. And uh, so I, I needed a place to put my energy, right? Um, and of course, his campaign ended a, a little bit before uh, protests started happening around the country and, and in Pittsburgh. And when those started happening, I realized that the Green Party is out there advocating for not just racial justice, but um, environmental justice, uh, for climate justice, um, immigration justice. I mean, you, you name it, the Green Party had a hand in it in Allegheny County in the city of Pittsburgh. And I saw a pretty stark reflection of my own values and what the Green Party was was working on in uh, in the city of Pittsburgh. So um, I, I jumped right in. You know, I, I was marching with those folks just about every week. Um, there were weekly protests going on in the city of Pittsburgh, and um, you know, we really got to know each other as as individuals and um, as not just people, but as as political individuals too, as political creatures. And uh, I met most of my team at those protests. Um, and it's been a really cool experience to to grow a campaign out of that. Um, you know, we we remodeled our um, Green Party of Allegheny County uh, platform after the protests last year. Tried to include some more justice-focused uh, policies and uh, really just expand all the things that you know the Green Party has always been for, but try to make it more responsive. I think to you know the current climate that we live in with the pandemic and, <clears throat> and excuse me, the social unrest um, and just trying to, you know, carve out a path forward. And we've just never stopped. Um, towards the end of the year, a lot of people were getting involved in Pittsburgh in budget discussions. Um, protesters who were once in the streets, especially once the pandemic started picking up, you know, started moving indoors to Zoom to budget hearings and the incumbent for the seat that I'm running for now, Anthony Coghill, uh, came on one budget meeting and said to, I, I guess he thought it was just his, uh, his peers and not everyone attending the meeting, well, what's the bad news? And it, it shook me after a year or a full summer of people trying to engage with local government and trying to tell city government what we wanted and what we wanted to see change 
that anybody would see participation in local government as a bad thing. It, it, it still shocks me. I mean, we need more civic engagement, not less, much less elected officials bullying people out of engaging, right? Um, so that, that was kind of what sparked me to run. Um, I had my own challenges <laughs> trying to engage with, uh, with my city council person. Um, I'm a bike ped advocate outside of the work that I do with the Green Party, um, advocating for bicycle infrastructure, better public transit, safer sidewalks, more accessibility. And um, frankly, the incumbent has never wanted to hear it. We've been advocating for improvements at one intersection around the corner from my house for two years where a young man died, a young father of a, of a son, haven't haven't heard a word. Um, and we're still trying to, to get engagement on, on that front. So it, it lit a spark. I, I had a lot of friends that were willing to take the plunge with me and decided to, to go and run. And I mean, it's it's been incredible, the momentum that we were able to build in, in the early running. We were able to get on some candidate forums with uh, not just the incumbent, but his other challengers in the Democratic Party. And, um, you know, we've just been racking up endorsements, racking up fundraising. We've we've been doing a good job there, but we can always do better, um, especially whenever you're running up against a candidate that just gives himself 40 or 50K every time he wants to run. Um, you know, we're, we're doing good. We're hanging in there. And, and it's great that, you know, you're all, uh, you know, helping me out, you know, the, the support that we've gotten, not just from the National Green Party, but the state Green Party, Greens from West Virginia and Ohio, um, has just been incredible. Um, so, you know, thank you for, for that and uh, continuing to support us and you specifically, Howie, for paving the way for us. Um, it's, it's still blowing my mind that, <laughs> that I'm here on this show with you. It's awesome. Yeah, well, I would uh, urge people has it come up on the comments to go to Connor's website and throw him a few dollars and uh, phone bank for him. I phone bank for him last Tuesday. Uh, he's got another session this Wednesday. Uh, I don't have the link for that yet, but I think if you go to the website and sign up as a volunteer, uh, they will let you know. Um, so this is a serious campaign and he's got quite a list of endorsements. Why don't you tell us uh, who endorsed you there in Pittsburgh? Yeah, I, uh, I hope I don't miss anybody. Um, the Pittsburgh chapter of Democratic Socialists of America have been a, a huge help. Uh, you know, I've, I've um, you know, gotten a lot of excellent advice from them, excellent support from, you know, the, the folks that are heavily involved with there. They've been helping us with phone banks, door knocking, research, um, just incredible help that we've gotten from the DSA. I, I can't express my thanks for them enough. Um, but also the Sunrise Movement, um, No Cop Money PA. Um, recently, we were endorsed by the Pennsylvania and Allegheny County chapters of the Sierra Club. Um, we've gotten some great local endorsements from activists like Claire Cohen, um, Mike Stout. Um, Cam Gordon has endorsed our campaign. Um, Geez, yeah. I mean, it, we've we've been building. Oh, socialist alternative. Sorry, can't for can't forget those folks. Um, we've we've been building a coalition like one that hasn't been seen in Pittsburgh before. Um, you know, I, to my knowledge, we've not seen all of those leftist organizations coalesce into into um, you know one one campaign. So 
it's um it's proven to be a force you know it's it's certainly already achieved more than i thought was possible but uh it's it's really really exciting to to see the momentum that we've built and we're not done i mean you mentioned that we have some phone banks coming up um i think that we have a, a link out there um if you go to the website slash calendar yep right there um you know you'll be able to find phone banks door knocking this morning we had a potluck actually um, I wasn't able to, to be there, unfortunately, but I heard there was donuts. Um, so yeah, we're, we're having fun and, uh, getting a lot of folks out there. A lot of folks that, um, you know, haven't, haven't been as engaged before or haven't been engaged in this way. And, you know, I think that's what it's all about. If me as a candidate can change one person's mind about how they think about the green party, local politics, um, city council, if, if I can change one person's mind, then I've done my job and, you know, it seems like we're changing a lot of folks' minds or at least getting them to think a little bit differently. So as you go around your district, what are the issues that people uh, want you to deal with the most? That's that's a good question. So um, in my district, a huge concern for a long time has been road conditions, um, whether you can uh, get a snow plow on your street my street was actually on the news at the end of last winter for being the last street plowed in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, that's usually important to people. Um, you know, it's, it's important to me personally. I, I ride a bike almost everywhere I go. It's my primary mode of transportation. And if the streets aren't clear or if it's not safe to go out there, I, I'm not going anywhere. Um, so the incumbent ran on, uh, uh, I guess, catchphrase of back to basics four years ago. And even in that time, what's, what's he been working on that's more basic than snow removal? <laughs> I'm, I'm still trying to find an answer to that question. Um, you know, even, even someone whose whole, whole deal was doing the bare minimum and, and we can't get a snow plow in the southern edge of the city of Pittsburgh is, is absurd. Um, so I'm diving headfirst into, into doing that. I mean, my my livelihood, my uh, safety depends on clear streets as well. Um, so we've been talking a bit about that. Um, a lot of folks are concerned with how a lot of members of council, my opponent included, are frankly just bought and sold, right? So uh, in Pittsburgh, our largest employer, I believe in the state of Pennsylvania as well, the largest employer is um, the UPMC Healthcare Network. And uh, my opponent has received donations from, um, I think, a couple of different sources, uh, healthcare packs. Uh, in my opinion, that's a direct conflict of interest, um, you know, compared to the things that I want to advocate for. Those uh, corporations that are dishing out money and, and, frankly, running city council, they don't pay taxes uh, in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, that was part of a deal cut with leaders, uh, I believe in the late 80s or early 90s, to, to not force these corporations to take taxes to try to pull the city of Pittsburgh out of the slump after the collapse of the steel industry. And we're paying for it now. You know, these corporations are huge and we don't have a lot to show for it. They don't pay their people well. They're union busting. They take up a huge, huge, huge footprint in the city of Pittsburgh. And it's a lot of tax money that we're just letting them walk straight out the door and my opponents being paid by them. So um, a lot of people see that as wrong. A lot of people want someone that's going to advocate for them. Um, I think that a lot of people that are already engaged in our part of town, whether you're advocating for clean air, 
clean water, safe streets, um, you know, you, you name it. If you're advocating for something in the south end of Pittsburgh, uh, you probably run into my opponent who will blow you off, laugh you out of his office, tell you it's not a problem, uh, and then let the issue die. And uh, it's just unacceptable. I mean, it goes back to the, the story about the budget meeting. How, how can you claim to want to serve and treat people that way? It's, it's absolutely absurd. Um, and people recognize that, you know, especially the ones that are, that are engaged that have tried to advocate for something because it's, it's happened to them. They've been turned away when all they want to do is try to improve their neighborhood. And, you know, I, I want to be the opposite of that. I'm there to, to listen. I'm not considering myself a policy expert on, on anything, but I want to talk to people. There are policy experts out there, people who, you know, are living and aren't able to access the neighborhoods the same way that I am as, you know, able-bodied person, um, you know, I'll never know what it's like to, um, you know, be a black person in America, but there are people who are advocating for racial justice. Those people need to be listened to by people in power. And if the people in power don't want to have anything to do with even just talking about these issues, they got to go, period. You know, I think people should realize that, uh, Pittsburgh, like a lot of cities, in this general election, there are four district council seats up. And no Republicans are running because they can't win in the cities. And three of the four Democrats up who are incumbents have no opponent. You're looking at the only person in Pittsburgh challenging the incumbents. And what does that say to the Green Party? There's a lot of opportunity for us there. You get an election, you have a platform, you can raise issues that the establishment is not. So that's just an appeal to people like, look at where you live and you will find unopposed candidates just, you know, election after election being elected. Or even if the Republicans put up an opposition, it's token. And usually in those circumstances, they're not people the Republicans vetted. So you get, you know, conspiracy theorists, cranks, crackpots, and Greens usually beat those candidates and come in at least second. So uh, you know, Connor stepped into a void that a lot more Greens need to step into. And shout out to uh, our friends in the Green Party of England and Wales uh, who um, gave us the, the idea, and I think they gave us the template as well, a physical template for a 60-second survey that we've been using um, and just handing to people at the doors and either having them email it back to us or, or hand it back to us on the spot. Um, People, people just want to be listened to. And even if you disagree with what a person is fundamentally saying, uh, at least in, in our particular circumstance, even just listening gets you, you know, a foot in the door or, you know, they're willing to listen to what you have to say because people are just so used to, you know, either politicians picking their constituents or good old boys with a whole lot of money and a whole lot of old power that, um, you know, think they can just coast on through. and. If you can slow that down just a little bit and pick up some momentum yourself, yeah, it's totally possible that Greens out there can win anywhere. And that's something that we've found too, is when we're able to talk to people, we get a lot of folks that, that you know, commit to, commit to voting for us. And we say it all the time. I think I told you this on uh, Monday, Howie, or said it to the, to the phone banking group, but when we talk to 
our neighbors about these issues, these things that we care deeply about, we win their votes. And it's really just a matter of talking to enough people. It's quite, quite literally a numbers game. And, uh, you know, we're, we're playing it that way. And that's why volunteering to phone bank or, you know, donating so that we can, uh, you know, squeeze a little bit more out of the dialer, um, you know, is, is so important in races like mine. I know that uh, housing is a big issue everywhere. Uh, wages increased by 3% last year nationwide. Housing costs by 23%. And you've got these private equity firms like BlackRock buying up all the homes that go on the market, turn them into rental homes. Uh, in Berlin, they passed a advisory referendum to expropriate, I think it was 200,000 uh, homes that are owned by the biggest landlords and turn them into uh, publicly owned homes through the public housing authority there. We'll see if they follow through on that. Um, I think that's a great idea for us to start raising here, but you know, tell us about your program to deal with housing in Pittsburgh, because I know it's gotta be an issue like it is everywhere. It, it is. Um, Pittsburgh, I, I couldn't tell you what the, the figures exactly look like, um, but I think it's clear to the naked eye if you've ever visited Pittsburgh that it's it's certainly rapidly gentrifying. Um, certainly not the uh, the Pittsburgh and uh, you know the the '90s, early 2000s that were just bleeding people. Um, but the, the housing situation is dire. Um, our district has had one of the highest rates of eviction since the pandemic started, and it, it doesn't appear to be slowing down. Um, you know, the city of Pittsburgh has had some, some mild uh, eviction protections. Um, they certainly could have been better. And uh, unfortunately, none of, them are, none of them are permanent. We need a permanent solution to this housing issue this issue of just bleeding people that already live here, that have historically lived here. And the only way to do that is really by ensuring that there's affordable housing. Now, the latest thing to come through Pittsburgh City Council is a measure that would essentially allow city council members themselves to block specific developments. Sounds interesting on its surface, um, but let's assume that, uh, say my opponent would, would have this power. This guy is being paid by developers already, um, you know, to essentially do their bidding in, in city council. Now, if he is the only rubber stamp that has to be on a development before it gets approved, I, I mean, it's, it's game over to our neighborhoods as we know it, unfortunately. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't trust this guy, most most people in city council, I wouldn't trust most members of Pittsburgh City Council to approve or deny developments because they're not housing activists, they're not city planners. How how can we possibly allow them to to have that power? The only thing that is going to ensure that Pittsburgh has affordable housing is strong requirements for affordable housing for every development, um, and not market based affordable housing, it needs to be based on median income and at a percentage of median income that's reasonable. 80% of median income is way too high. <laughs> For a lot of people, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening know how much it costs to live in their areas, but in, in Pittsburgh, 80% of median income is still more than what most people make. 
Um, so, you know, we, we need to take avenues like that. We need to assure that every development is affordable instead of trying to empower city council people who may or may not have good intentions. Yeah, the, uh, the standard was 25% back in the 60s and 70s. And somewhere along the way, I can't remember. I think it was under Clinton. They raised the federal standard of affordability of 30% of your income. Um, but the numbers nationwide are about uh, a quarter, a half the people pay more than 30% of their income for their housing and a quarter pay over half their income, which means it's not affordable because, you know, once you pay the rent then you got to buy food, you got to keep your car running in most cases in order to get to work or school or get the groceries. Because uh, we got food deserts in our cities. I don't know about your district, but certainly in Syracuse, we don't have a grocery store in the city. You got to go to the suburbs for a real grocery store. We got corner stores with, you know, crap food, no fresh food. So, um, you know, that's, that's a huge issue. And uh, one thing Pittsburgh had for a while was a, a land value taxation. And it seemed to have helped it, you know, make the transition from steel town to sort of eds and meds high tech town, which, you know, has fostered a well-rewarded middle class, but hasn't brought the working class up. Um, have you given thought to land value taxation as a way to limit how much uh, absentee landlords can extract from the community? Yeah, we've been exploring with um, you know folks that are adjacent to the campaign different solutions that would um, you know empower people to own their own homes. Um, Pittsburgh does have a land bank that uh, just has completely lost its its teeth. Um, really, never had any to to begin with, um, but that's something that is already there. Um, can be tweaked. Somewhat, um, it would certainly be a fight because I'm sure there's a lot of people in power that don't want to see a project like that being successful. Um, but that that is uh, one mode. Uh, unfortunately, we can't do a lot with rent control because of um, you know certain laws uh, coming down from from the state. Um, but yeah, that housing is um, <laughs> housing is is one thing that. Uh, I'm looking forward to working with partners and, uh, you know, learning more, more about because, you know, we, we need those sorts of levers like, uh, different tax structures that will help us, uh, you know, keep our, keep our neighborhoods the way that they're meant to be, you know, homes for people. Yeah. I should have said they had land value taxation and then it got repealed. And what land value taxation does is, uh, it taxes the land underneath improvements. So improvements are taxed or they're taxed at a lower rate, which means improvements are encouraged and speculation is discouraged and sprawl development is discouraged. Compact development is encouraged. So you get walkable communities. And what it does is basically tax away a portion or all of the unearned income that landlords get. The value of land goes up and they didn't have to do anything to do it. Uh, increase that value in many cases because it was a public investment in roads or mass transit that made the land around those uh, those transportation corridors more valuable 
or they're sitting on a piece of property and other investors, you know, put in stores or housing more people and the value of the land they own. As John Stuart Mill said over a century ago, they make money while they sleep. They don't have to work for it. It's unearned. So land value taxation is part of a, you know, progressive and just track uh, tax system, in my opinion, and it's underutilized. And it's interesting that Pennsylvania is one of the few places in this country where it's been used. It's been used in many places around the world and had good results. So I have a question for you. Are you on the ballot as a green or a small eye independent? I'm on as a green. Yeah. Um, okay, good. We, we shared it on Twitter. We got our sample ballot in the mail and I uh, immediately shot it out to, to our team and uh, we shared it with the hashtag be seen being green. Um, I'm extremely proud of that. You know, I, I joined the green party for a reason and um, you know, having that, that, designation next to my name means means a lot to me yeah so we're on as a green yeah well the reason i asked is some states if you don't have a statewide ballot line you can petition to get on as an independent small i but you can't give it the green label in other states you can and apparently pennsylvania is one of those states new york is one of those states but there are many states where you can't do that until you get a statewide ballot line which is why you know that's one reason we need to those ballot lines around the country. So when people go to vote, they know they're voting for Greens, not that's just right. some person that says I'm independent. And then what does that mean? And who are you really being backed by? So we've had independents here like John Galasano, the paychecks tycoon, you know, the, the payroll company. And he was a hard right winger. But because he had this independence label, uh, a lot of people said, well, he's neither Democrat or Republican. I'll give it a try without knowing what he stood for. Um, you know, if people have questions, write them in the chat and we will uh, ask them of Connor. Um, so you, you make mobility a big issue, you know, and that involves, you know, bikes and uh, walking. Uh, how about public transportation? What's going on in Pittsburgh with that? You yeah, know, great question. Light rails so or buses. Uh, so our district is blessed to be one of the few places in the city of Pittsburgh that has access to the light rail line. Um, it's it's basically a, a line from the center of town to the South Hills straight down. Um, doesn't have any additional branches. We do have uh, busways, which again, the southern part of the city is blessed to have a branch of the busway, but then you know one that goes north, south, east, and east and west connecting. So. Um, we do have some public transit, arguably better public transit than some other parts of town. That being said, the lines are not well connected. So if you live in between the trolley and the busway, you're probably walking over a mile to get to either of, of those nodes. Um, there's zero bike lane infrastructure on our part of town. Sidewalks are in just shameful states of disrepair um so it's it's kind of those last mile uh, trips that uh our part of town struggles with and then there's also an issue with um the transit infrastructure itself so um bus stops benches um bus lanes those are things that the city of pittsburgh controls the port authority of allegheny county is is as the name would suggest a county body um, 
So those are the things that I, I want to try to improve, the things that the city does have control over. Things like bus lanes could double as a, a bike and bus lane that works in other parts of the city of Pittsburgh. Um, you know, the, <laughs> the stations uh, all along Brownsville Road and uh, Brookline Boulevard and um, Beachview Avenue is, uh, or excuse me, Broadway Avenue and Beachview is pretty, pretty well stocked with the trolley. But at any rate, the main business thoroughfares in, in our district, um, the, the transit stops leave a lot to be desired. Um, and those are things that, you know, I, I hope to improve. And um, it's been hard to watch over the last couple of months towards the end of summer, the, the city of Pittsburgh has launched a, a pilot program with a, a scooter company, an electric scooter company. And we see these things zipping around town being left on sidewalks in parking spaces, bus lanes, bike lanes, going through the, the Liberty Tunnel, which is the thoroughfare. The, it's a state state highway that goes underneath a mountain into downtown Pittsburgh. People riding these electric scooters through this. The city is taking this insane risk, frankly, rolling this out, and yet you can't ride a bike safely on our side of town. Um, the, the priorities are just completely out of whack as far as mobility is, is concerned, at least on our side of town. Others, places that some folks would uh, call sort of favored neighborhoods of the city of Pittsburgh, um, have all sorts of great infrastructure, roundabouts, bike lanes, bike networks, bike racks, better transit, like eh, all of the things seem to be happening on other parts of town we don't we don't get that where I'm at, partially because nobody's advocating for it. You know, we don't have representation that will step up, um, and that's something that's incredibly important to me. It's not just about safety or getting around town, but to your point, Howie, I I technically live in a food desert. Um, I ride my bike to the grocery store or, or take the bus. Um, you know, I, I sometimes use a car. I don't always have access to one, but not everybody is is as fortunate as that. Transit can be a way to you know shorten those trips to make everything closer. It's not just about relieving food deserts, but healthcare deserts, um, helping people get to work faster, school. It opens up a, a whole new world to, to people. And that's why transit is so important. It can be a really great equalizer in a lot of different ways. And we need someone that understands that, you know, electric cars aren't, uh, aren't gonna be the, the answer to all of these questions, um, especially in the short term. I can't afford an electric car. Forget it. What What's an electric car charger in downtown Pittsburgh going to do for me? Nothing. Um, and that's that's more generally the case. Okay. Eric Gray asks, hey, Connor, what's your strategy for building political power in your community in order to organize and defeat more of these corrupt incumbents? That's a great question. Um, I mean, we we have to just keep the momentum up. I think, um, you know, we've, we've opened up a lot of, uh, doors, a lot of new ideas for people in our side of town. Um, it's often considered one of the more conservative parts of town. Um, and there's not a lot of, uh, even progressive, I'm putting some of these words in, in air quotes for anybody that's listening later. Um, but you don't see a lot of quote unquote progressive activism happening in in our side of town and i think that's one of the reasons why we've been more popular is because we are engaging on ideas like 
demilitarizing, excuse me, demilitarizing the police, taxing giant healthcare nonprofits, safer streets. You know, people want to talk about these things, but there's just not been an outlet or an infrastructure. We just have to keep doing it. Um, we've not quite gotten to that part of the campaign where we're thinking about after uh, the election day yet, but um, I think that's 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 the only strategy that I see forward is to continue engaging our neighbors on all of these issues um, and continuing to build power and make friends and keep keep it rolling. Hey, Mail Sex, Connor, have you been able to get any good faith media coverage locally? Uh, great question. So uh, there, everybody that's green is is kind of aware of the sort of wall of silence, I guess, uh, that you get as far as coverage goes. We have gotten some. Um, to their credit, the Pittsburgh Tribune Review has covered us a couple of times. Uh, I believe... Uh, when we announced our, our campaign, they covered us. Um, when we, once they kicked off our general election campaign, they covered us as well. Um, but there, there's more coming. We've, we've been getting asks for interviews um, really, I think, even less than a, a week ago. Um, we've been fielding more questions about interviews. So it's getting there. Um, it's certainly more than I would have expected based on my understanding of coverage of greens in the past. So that's exciting too. Eric Gray. Also, have you thought about ways to enhance property ownership, especially within communities of color? Yeah, the, so that's one place where the land bank could be a huge help. Um, you know, essentially if anybody's not familiar with, with land banks, the way that they work is that, um, you know, city or municipality, um, takes ownership of properties and, um, you know, it, it enters into this field of, of properties and then they're resold um, to people who, who need homes at, you know, very small amounts. Um, you know, that, that tool, if it can be leveraged correctly and, and built up, that could be a, a huge, um, a huge entryway into home ownership for, um, you know, people of color, poor people, people who've been pushed out of the city of Pittsburgh previously, they could come back. Um, Pittsburgh, like a lot of urban centers in America, has a long history of pushing people out, particularly poor people and people of color. Um, you know, a land bank can be a, a really useful tool. Um, and that's something that I believe in. I believe it could work. It can also help with right-sizing cities, um, which I think, um, believe... Syracuse or, or maybe Albany, um, somewhere up your way, Howie has, has had some success in right sizing through, uh, land banking. I might be mistaken, but, um, well, I'll tell you about Syracuse, Syracuse. Yeah. The land banks bought a lot of property, but they're packaging it for developers. Mm. And, you know, this neighborhood I live in, uh, about half the buildings or homes are abandoned. Basically, the black neighborhood now was white. The white people move away and just rent them out till they, you know, wear them out, and then they're not habitable. Um, so the land banks come in and torn down most of those buildings instead of rehabilitated them. And uh, they're very aggressive, so they'll try to get you know five or six lots in a row, and then they're trying to package that for developers. Now this city's so damn poor and broke that they haven't been able to sell many of those. Uh, 
you know, lots that they've packaged to developers yet, but that's their plan. So I don't think it's helping with affordable housing, although it could, you know, if they, uh, you know, either rehab the buildings there or when they tear one down, put one up and make it affordable for uh, the people who live here. I think what we really need is, is, is money in public housing in our public housing authority uh, that can do that. And, and actually, our public housing authority has done some of that. The problem is the scale is so small because the federal government and the state government haven't been supporting public housing basically since 1970. And uh, there is some money in this uh, reconciliation bill. At least there was originally. I don't know if it's going to survive the cuts they're making right now. Uh, but, you know, public housing is the most cost effective way to get affordable housing to the people because you don't have to deal with the developers and the landlords that want their cut and profit. You build it on a nonprofit at cost basis and you're providing a service at cost, not trying to make money off people and squeeze them for all they're worth like BlackRock is doing. So, uh, you know, land bank could be used well. I know Flint, Michigan has one. Um, and I've seen it described as the good things it could do. I haven't yet, to, I have yet to see it done that way. Partly right. because local politics in this country is dominated by the real estate industry. You know, you look at who's funding these campaigns, it's landlords and developers. And while I'm on my little stump, you know, one thing I think we should do as green candidates for local offices is say, our planning commission or department or whatever we got should do the planning and then put out bids and let the developers bid on building what we want. What happens now is the developers come to the planning commission and it gets rubber stamped because it's economic growth. And, you know, what they plan has nothing to do with, you know, rational uh, community enhancing urban planning. It's all about making money for the developer. So I think planning commission, and when we talk about a local green new deal, that should be the hub of planning the energy transformation and the walkable communities transformation and the public transit transformation. So the planning commission, uh, instead of being a rubber stamp, should be like a center where the community can come together and tell the people that build this stuff, here's what we want you to build, instead of just being a rubber stamp for what they want to build. Okay, back to, back to you, Connor. Andy Messick, a big problem locally for me in Maryland is the underhanded anti-homelessness architecture where the Democrats running my local area put in various park benches with three arms on it to make it so the homeless can't lay on the bench and other things like that. Is this a problem in Pittsburgh? And what sorts of things would you do instead of the anti-homeless policy I mentioned? Uh, before I answer that question, I just have to point out that I caught your uh, little picture there, Andy. Uh, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, uh, so that was very cool. Um, yeah, there it is. It, it seems to be Ahsoka holding Grogu. It looks like Anakin's uh, standing over top of him with the walker in the background. That's great. Um, so to answer your question, sorry to derail that. Uh, again, big Star Wars fan. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that uh, anti-homeless architect architecture or hostile architecture is a problem everywhere in every urban center. Um, I, would, I would like to see it banned outright. Um, I don't know what sort of language that would require. Um, but I mean, I think that 
the better question is, I mean, how do we get people in houses, you know, to, to Howie's point, I, and I agree with you that public housing is, you know, really the, the best answer. Um, and I, I think that's true in, in Pittsburgh as well, although the public housing in, in the city of Pittsburgh is mired in all sorts of issues right now too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that hostile architecture is, is shameful. Um, I, I wish that it didn't exist if, if possible, you know, that's certainly something that I would hope to legislate out of existence. Um, but, you know, getting people in homes, I think is, is the best, you know, solution. And keeping them in their homes too, for that matter. Jean Lowe's Pascalides, hope I pronounced that right. Uh, she asked, do you have a pet project for your district for, or for greater Pittsburgh? Um, I wouldn't call this a, a pet project. Um, something that I'm particularly passionate about. And there are people who do more work on it than, than I do. Uh, but there is a section of my district called Seldom Seen Greenway, which if you look at a map, it looks like any other huge park in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, but it's registered as a passive green space. So the city doesn't manage it. There are like deer trails and some well-maintained trails completely maintained by volunteers. Um, city provides no assistance whatsoever because it's classified as this passive green space. At the bottom of, this all sits up on a, on a hill, right? So at the bottom, there's a state highway, uh, five or six lanes, across and then uh you get to the mount washington section of pittsburgh the back end of it which if anybody's ever been to pittsburgh it's the part that kind of sits above downtown with the awesome views at the bottom of that hill there is a uh, transit tunnel it's, it's really only used by port authority buses um but it's a straight line into the heart of the city of pittsburgh and uh something that i advocate for in uh, my work as South Hills Safe Streets um, as a bike pet advocate is trying to get the city to actually maintain those trails, use that not just as a passive green space, because um, that's something else that's lacking in, in our district is a big regional park. Other parts of the city of Pittsburgh have beautiful, well-maintained parks that have um, green space, playgrounds, basketball courts, tennis courts, you know, all of these awesome amenities really doesn't exist uh, on our end of town, but it could, or at least the trails part could, right? And that does a couple of things. It gives people green space where they can do hiking, biking. There's actually great uh, rock climbing in that part as well that people do kind of like gorilla style, I guess, climbing on these rock walls that used to be train trestles. Um, could be, you know, an awesome space if it were managed. In conjunction with that transit tunnel, it could also be a direct line for pedestrians and people walking and rolling straight into downtown, where now you're crossing uh, or walking down or, or past uh, huge state highways. And the state of Pennsylvania is uh, trying and frankly failing to you know, protect people that aren't inside of cars on, on their roads that they maintain. Um, so I, I 
would consider that a, a pet project, I guess. It's something that I care a whole lot about because I think our side of town really, really needs it. Um, something that we have big plans for, uh, this, the South Hill Safe Streets group that, that I helped co-found, we have big plans for continuing to advocate for that. And I um, hope I can get it done, you know, if, if uh, or sh I should say when, uh, when we get into city council, that's, that's something that, you know, I want to give particular attention to. <laughs> uh, that's cool, uh, Andy. Yeah, I, um, Dave Filoni grew up uh, not too far from where I live, and uh, if I would have been, if I would have foreseen talking about Star Wars, I would have worn my directed by Dave Filoni T-shirt. Um, so that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> well, I see in the chat, Scott Trooper. Scout Trooper 164, who's a regular on here, forgot, and he he uses the f bomb to, uh, you know, express his frustration. But uh, Scout Trooper and everybody else, um, I'll be back on Monday night at 8 p.m. The Eco Action Committee of the National Green Party is having a uh, webinar. It's uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. And we're going to uh, be talking with Dallas Goldtooth of the Indigenous Environmental Network, uh, Mark Dunley of the New York Greens and the Eco Action Committee, and myself on uh, what we need to do now about climate change. And you got a foreshadowing of that in my first, uh, my opening. And uh, the information on that is now in the website where to register at. So I hope, uh, you know, many of you can make that. That's eight o'clock. Monday night. It'll be up online somewhere uh, if you can't make that time. And uh, so, Connor, before we uh, go, because we're coming up on the hour, um, you want to say any last words for the folks about your campaign and how they can help? Yeah, uh, we are sort of a ragtag group of misfits uh you know throwing this campaign together and and really just dumping all our our heart and soul into it um but if you have the the means you know we can certainly use donations uh, i think the the uh, yeah there's the link right there our uh, connor for pgh.com slash donate um again we're i'll reiterate we're up against the independently wealthy good old boy incumbent and every cent is going to count in this race. We're, we're certainly going to make good use of it. Uh, if you have the the time and extra energy and hopefully everybody, you know, was, was energized by the stuff that Howie and I talked about, you can go to that link below there, conifor.pgh.nationbuilder.com slash calendar um, and sign up for a phone bank. Uh, and then there's also door knocking events uh, on that calendar as well. So if you're, in southwestern Pennsylvania or eastern Ohio, northern West Virginia, pay us a visit. You know, we, we can use your help. Really, any any help, whether it's an hour of phone banking, you know, a couple dollars for, for a donation, you know, we, we need it. Um, and, you know, I, I want to say, too, how I, um, you know, if anybody's listening out there and is interested in running as a green, um, I've, I've gotten a lot of help, you know, not just from Howie, other Greens across the country uh, were great resources for, for me. So I just want to open myself up. If anybody's considering running, especially if you're a young person, 
um, you know, the Green Party of Allegheny County, myself, my campaign staff are, are happy to help in any way that we can. Um, we, we need more people to run. If, if you want to change something in your community, your city, you can do it. You know, you just have to step up and run. And, you know, we want to facilitate more of uh, more people's runs like like ours. Well, thank you, Connor. And uh, Lizzie Adams in the chat corrected me. I said Dallas Goldtooth from the Indigenous Environment Network. It's actually his father, Tom Goldtooth, who will be on and is uh, really one of the people that originated the Indigenous Environmental Network, which has had a big impact on uh, the environmental movement, the climate movement, and uh, treaty rights, the whole work. So he's definitely worth uh, tuning in to hear. And uh, I, I think the last point I'll make is, is to just underscore what Connor said. Um, you know, we can't whine that, you know, the politicians aren't being responsive when we have unopposed candidates that we don't run against. And people can get online, they can go to protests, but if we don't give people another option to vote for, the incumbents are going to ignore all that. You know, I like to use the example of the movement against the war in Iraq. In 2003, New York Times called us the world's second superpower, massive demonstrations all over the world. But because there wasn't a strong party on the left and the Greens were being vilified because of the 2000 election that NATO was involved in and the biggest coalition in the peace movement ended up endorsing Kerry, the Democrats just let that roll off their backs because we weren't threatening their votes. So if we don't do that, we got no right to complain. So I urge people to you know, look at your situation and start looking at races locally where you can run and we can win those because you don't need a lot of money, you know, in a district. How many people are in your district? How many how many votes will be cast in this election, Connor? Our our win number is a little bit over 4,000. Okay, that is on a scale where the candidate and their volunteers can go knock on doors and talk to everybody or or phone them, contact them one way or another. And that takes people power. You know, you can buy all the ads you want, but in a market like Pittsburgh, you can't target them for a district council race because the advertising is metropolitan. So, you know, they can pay a lot of money to consultants and they can pay people that are doing it because they're getting paid, not because they really believe in the cause. Whereas we have people that believe in the cause. We can beat these people and we have, we have many, <coughs> excuse me, we have many times. We actually have a pretty good win percentage in these local races. So, that's just to encourage people. If we're going to, you know, get the things we need, whether it's climate or housing or immigration or police reform or whatever it is, uh, we got no right to complain if we aren't running our own candidates because otherwise we're going to be ignored. So that's a pitch to, you know, start looking at what you can do in your own community. And with that, thanks again, Connor. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we hope to see a lot of you Monday night. We're going to have a real good discussion on uh, climate policy and uh, what Indigenous Peoples Day means. Love.